Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Hebrews, and we'll complete it today. And uh, if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And the Lord sure wants you to have a Bible, and we want you to have a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. So this wonderful book that we've been in now for weeks and months, and um, and I felt the Lord has certainly blessed my heart and enriched my relationship with the Lord as a result. We now come to the close of it. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen means that's the truth, so be it. And I appeal to you, brethren, here, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in a few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. And so Timothy was a fellow, they all knew him, the receiving of the letter and the writer of the letter. Greet all those who rule over you. This is just good manners in writing a letter. Greet the leaders of the church there, all of the saints that make up that wonderful body. Those from Italy, the Christians with the writer, they greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit right now, a fresh anointing to be able to hear your voice and to receive something eternal from your eternal word into our lives and into our relationship with you. It means the world to us to hear your voice not only in our ears and in our minds, but in our spirit, that place that you touch, that place that you say amen in. And we pray that this morning you would do that through this passage in each one of our lives today. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you care for us. Thank you that you know us the way that you do and you love us anyway. And you stay committed to us, Lord, unfailingly. We praise you for your faithfulness, your goodness, your grace toward us, Lord. Now may it just continue in our lives as we study this book that is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I think that when one reads this book of Hebrews, and certainly as you come to the end of it now, and the writer begins and actually does conclude the letter, I think you can certainly get the sense that the writer of this book would have liked to continue to lay this majestic case that he has been laying down for the superiority of Christ over all things until he possessed the guarantee from the listener and from the reader 
that they would forever abandon anything and everything that would tempt them to abandon their commitment to Christ. And there's that sense where he's wanting to wrap the letter up, and he does wrap it up, but he, he, what they're going to do with what he's said, he doesn't know. And sometimes when you're in one of those conversations where it's somebody that you love, it's someone that you are so emotionally and in every way invested in them, and when you realize this conversation, whether in written form or face-to-face, is now going to come to an end without me knowing what they're going to do with what it is that we've been talking about and what what I have said, and when you have to leave that conversation off at that moment and back away, that's not an easy place uh, to be. And so here he is, he's, he declares this letter to be something that he has spoken to them in just a few words. You say 13 chapters. I mean, what would, what would a long sermon be by him? But remember, he's dealing with, the, in, in the book, the whole theme of the book is the superiority of Christ. In more kind of simple terms, that Jesus is better that Jesus is better than everything, not just secular. He's better than anything religious. And when that's your point and when that's your theme, at the end of 13 chapters, you feel like you're just scratching the surface related to your theme. And he speaks to them one final time to heed his exhortation, to listen to his exhortation. He has been pleading with them in that way And he has delivered to them some of the strongest exhortation found in the whole New Testament and the whole Old Testament. And yet before he closes, he pleads with them, he beseeches them to take seriously what it is that he has said and his call upon them to recommit themselves fully uh, to the Lord and the things of the Lord in their life. And so then he ends the letter. And, of course, all letters have to end. And letters like the letter to the Hebrews, they have to end before we know what the effect of our letter is going to be upon the reader. We do our best under the leading of the Holy Spirit and say the things that we feel He wants us to say, and then ultimately we have to entrust people to God. And so we must say goodbye and then leave them to do the right thing. Now, goodbyes, whether they're in written form or whether they are verbally delivered face-to-face, those are never easy times. And they're especially hard when we're forced to say goodbye to someone and there is some great, great issue, indeed the greatest issue in life, unresolved. And I've got to walk away from this person that I love so much with no guarantee which direction that they're going to go in, but now I've got to leave it with them and I've got to walk away from them. And those make, those make goodbyes, those goodbyes are especially difficult in those circumstances. Now the world says goodbye in a lot of different ways. Those of you who are old enough to remember Roy Rogers and Dale 
Evans singing Happy Trails to you until we meet again at the close of their little Western show. It's one way to say goodbye. Winnie the Pooh, I'm pulling out all of the great minds in the history of the world. Winnie the Pooh declared, Promise me you'll never forget me, because if I thought you would, I'd never leave. There's the famous English poet, Lord Byron. He wrote of goodbye with, I think, kind of a a sense of sad resignation. And he wrote, Farewell, a word that must be and has been, a sound which makes us linger, yet farewell, inescapable. Someone else, I think, with the same sense of melancholy but a little less poetic flair said of goodbye, Where is the good in goodbye? Now, as Christians, goodbyes to the people that we love, they're no less painful than for someone who doesn't know the Lord. They're no less difficult than everybody else in the world. But when we're forced to say goodbye to loved ones, we have the comfort and we have the blessing of being able to commend them to the Lord in prayer as we say goodbye to them. It's not just goodbye and then that's it. We have the ability to say goodbye and then begin to intercede for them, to stay active in their life on a different level that the world doesn't know anything about. So there's a sense that our goodbye is not as complete as the goodbye of those that don't know the Lord. And so we are able to continue to pray for the person we're saying goodbye to, to commend them to the Lord through prayer with the knowledge that God hears our prayers and that he values our prayers and that they are meaningful to him and that he does answer those prayers. And this is what the writer does now as he closes this letter to these saints that he loves so much and clearly he loves them and that he is so concerned over Notice what he prays for them in verse 21. He prays that they would, that God would make them complete in every good work to do His will. The word complete there, the English word comes from a Greek word, and the New Testament is written in Greek in the original. But the Greek word translated complete, it refers to repairing something or mending something or equipping for something. In the ancient world, doctors would use this particular word to refer to the setting of a broken bone. Fishermen would use this word to refer to the mending of nets that had been broken. Sailors would use the word to refer to the outfitting of a ship in preparation for voyage. Soldiers would use the very same word to refer to the equipping of an army for battle. In other words, the writer is telling them that they needed to heed and obey this letter, God's word, in order that in doing so it might heal what was broken in them spiritually to heal the flaw, the spiritual flaw in them that allowed them to even consider abandoning their commitment to Christ. Anyone 
Any Christian who considers abandoning their commitment to Christ, there is a flaw in their spirit. There is a flaw in their spiritual commitment. And he is praying for that flaw, that spiritual lack in their life, to be mended in their life. The writer is telling them to heed and to obey this letter in order that it might prepare and equip them for the rest of their spiritual journey, that it might re-equip them to enter into the spiritual battle that we all face as Christians living for the Lord in this world. And their spiritual drifting, we would call it a backslide. You might call it a mild backslide, but they were in great danger at the time. The Bible talks about the backslider and heart will be filled with all of his ways. A person backslides in his heart and in his mind way before you ever see it outwardly. And so they had this backslidden condition that they were in, that he was calling them back from. It hadn't begun to manifest itself in kind of outward actions yet. It was still a backsliding in the heart and in the mind. And so he was uh, calling on them in this spiritual drifting that they were in and telling them that that season in their life wasn't terminal. God still had work for them to do and that his purposes and his plans for them remained intact. And he asked for God to bless them as they recommitted to God's plan. I think some of, maybe some of these Hebrew Christians were wondering if God still had a plan and a purpose for their life after their season of drifting from him. And he does. And he always does. He always does. There is a good and an acceptable and a perfect will of God in front of each of us, no matter what our past is. No matter what our past is. I can't change my past. You can't change your past. Once it's in my past, it's out of my control. It's out of your control. Whether it's 30 years ago, or whether it's five years ago, or whether it's a year ago, or whether it's 15 minutes ago, once it's in my past, it is out of my control. But the good news is that the Bible teaches that in front of us there is a good and an acceptable and a perfect will of God for each of our lives. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And it's wonderful to realize that no matter how badly we fail in life, no matter how badly we stub our toes spiritually or how badly we drift or we backslide, that if we turn back to God, that the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance, and there is immediately in front of my little old toes, as I would stand someplace, right in front of me there is a line that on the other side of it, if I want it, there is a good and an acceptable and a perfect will of God for me from this moment forward. I can't control what's back there. I can't control what I was. I can't control what I did. But what I do have control over is what I'm going to do in the future. And God wants me to know that there is a future and there is a hope for us. 
even in that kind of, of a condition, that kind of place that a person might find themselves in. And he exhorted them to get back to what God had originally called them to as Christians and their relationship with Christ. That had been hurt and that had been damaged. But to go back to that, that Christ awaited them, to go back to his call, the ministry that Jesus had called them to, in order to be an influence for the kingdom of God in the world. And he just told them to get right and get going again. There might be some of us here this morning where you need to recommit your life to the Lord. And you want to do it, but you lack the confidence that he will accept you if you do. You say, it's in my past. It was an hour ago. It was 12 hours ago. It was seven days ago. It was 21 days ago. I don't know if he'll ever have me back again. I don't know that there's a relationship with him that I can ever have that resembles what I once had. I don't know that there's a purpose and a plan for my life. And sometimes we can hesitate because of our past or because of our sin. And the Bible teaches us that he will accept us as we just recommit our life back to Him. He will repair the damage. He will set your bones. He will get you on the mend. And He will get you moving forward once again in His plans for your life. Now the second thing that He prayed is that God would work in them what was well-pleasing in His sight, and God's sight. In other words, God not only had, didn't just have a plan for them, and he doesn't just have a plan for our lives, but then he then provides us with the supernatural power to live that plan. And he will supply us with whatever strength we need or motivation we need or power we need that is required to live a life that is faithful to him no matter what location we find ourselves in. No matter what apartment complex we live in, no matter what part of town or what town or what family we're a part of or what school environment or work environment, that God will always provide us with the motive to live for God in that environment and then the power to live for God in that environment. And they might have lacked the natural desire and power to stand strong for God in their circumstances. They look at me and say, well, I gave it my best try in my own natural strength and my own natural t- abilities and talents, and I took it all the way to the very place as far as I could go until I was terrified for my life, and then I backed off. And how can I know that I'll be any more successful the next time? I try to live for God. And they tried to live for God and they tried to be faithful to God, at least on some level, in their own strength. And when the demands of their life and their situation became greater than their own natural abilities and their own strength, they cried uncle. Why? Because they failed to realize that God will provide us with a motivation and with a power to be faithful to God that is greater than any obstacle we will ever face in our lives as Christians and our desire to be faithful to God in the fallenness of this world. 
One of the great verses related to that is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He provides us with the will to live this life. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing if he just gave us the will and then didn't give us the power? Or gave us the power and he didn't give us the will? But he does both. He gives us a desire to have this relationship with God, and then to live this life, and then he gives us the power, the ability to do it. Paul put it another way when he wrote his first letter to the church at Thessalonica, and he said, He that is God who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Doesn't that do something good inside of you to hear that? That's just as crystal clear and as simple as can be and says it all. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And the importance as Christians of believing that. I think so often someone can not know the Lord yet, and maybe that's you here this morning. You're not yet a Christian. And you've seen some dramatic change occur. And maybe a mother or a father or a child or a brother or a sister or a friend And they've given their life to the Lord, and the change that you have seen is so dramatic that initially you don't want anything to do with it. Because you might want a little bit of change, but you don't want that much change. No matter how happy they are, how joy-filled they are, how blessed they are, it's not for you, you say. And then you live life for a while. And then the beating that goes on in this world, getting beat up emotionally and mentally and physically that goes on, and then pretty soon a person can reach a place where we once thought, no, I don't want that, I don't want that yet, and then now all of a sudden one day that final emotional sledgehammer hits us out of left field. We didn't wake up that day expecting that to happen. And then we realize that that's exactly what I want. I want that kind of a change. I don't want to be the person that I've always been. And there's that longing. But one of the things that can happen to a person at that point is to realize, I'm too weak. I can't do that. I could never become like that person. And what you fail to realize is is that God's the one that cleans you up. And when you give your life to God, He will come into your life by the Holy Spirit and He will give you a desire to live the Christian life. And then He will give you the power to live that same life and it will be the joy of your life to do that. Never ever back away from Christianity and giving your life to the Lord because you say, I could never do that, I could never live that. No, you couldn't do it, and you could never live it in your own strength. But God will supply the power to do that, and he's faithful to do that. I think about how often, for those of us who are Christians, how often God has to push us beyond our own resources in order to discover his that's what he had to do with them. And here they are, they, these Jewish believers, 
They have gone the best that they have in terms of stick to determination, and courage, and all. And they take all of that natural ability, and it takes them out this far. But then the trials in life, the demands of life, the difficulty of life is far greater than their resources. And they stop in that particular trench, and they fail, and then they retreat from that place. And we try to live the Christian life on our own strength, under our own resources. And God has this wonderful thing. He's got all of these resources that are available to us free that come from Him. But so often He has to push us beyond our own resources to put us in situations that overwhelm our emotional, our mental, our physical strengths and abilities because he knows that's the only place we will then discover his. You think about how many Christians, it may be you, how many Christians choose to live their entire Christian life within the parameters of their own natural abilities and their own natural talents and strengths. And they never allow God to push them beyond those limitations, into a place where they have to draw on His. This is one of the reasons that Christian service is so important. For a Christian to find out from God what is God's call upon my life and then to obey that call and be faithful to that call. Because that call will force you always beyond your own resources. But it is only as you go there that you'll discover his resources. And his resources are limitless. It is a miserable place to be in a trial where you come up to that line. And then I won't cross over it. Continue to be faithful to the Lord in this circumstance. And... And I assume that if I continue to be faithful to him, it'll be the death of me. And right at that point, to continually come to that line and retreat and come to that line and retreat, come to that line and retreat for years and years and decades in a Christian life. And what do I need to do? The next time, in order to be faithful to God and his word, when you come up to that line where you've always retreated, to just say to the Lord, if this is the very death of me, I will not retreat from that place. I will obey you here and see what happens. And at that moment, you break through the veil. You bust through the wall. And then you begin to experience the supernatural of the Christian life. You say, what could make, why would God take his children and put them through the kind of hardship that we feel that, number one, brings us up to that line where it's right at the, our, the line of our limitation and then give us commandments that in order for us to be faithful to take us beyond that line? Is God some kind of a cruel God to do that to his people? Because he does that to every one of his children. No, he knows that what we will discover and experience with him when he forces us beyond that 
is this whole supernatural of the Christian life. God's will being supplied to us, His power being supplied to us, and being able to stand for God in environments that we never dreamed we could, and for the rest of our lives we will know that never came from me. He knows the reward of but feeling that one time in our Christian life is worth the hardship to take us there, let alone to then build our camp on that side of the line and then make that glory our daily portion. What a discovery that is and what a feeling that is. But all of that, the plan of God, the power of God, it's only experienced in Jesus. Nowhere else, he says. He says, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. To walk away from him is to walk away from the most glorious life a person can have the privilege of ever experiencing in life. The privilege of living a life that brings glory to Jesus. You remember when, and, and brings glory to God the Father as we do so. Remember in the, in the Gospels when, Jesus was preaching to a crowd of thousands, thousands. And he begins to speak to them hard things about following him. And the crowd begins to melt away. They just wanted more fish and bread. The crowd begins to melt away. And as this crowd begins to melt away under the the discipleship demands that Jesus placed upon them in order to become one of his disciples... He turned to his disciples. He turned to the twelve the apostles. One of the most amazing pictures of divine vulnerability in all of the Bible. And he said to them, will you leave me also? Do you realize that Jesus makes him vulner- himself vulnerable to every single human being in that way? He never forces himself on anyone. He gives everyone the freedom to either choose him or reject him. But he spoke to the twelve, and Peter spoke on behalf of the twelve and said, Where would we go? For you have the words of everlasting life. You have ruined us from ever going back into the world and being successful there because of what we have experienced in our life with you. I notice in this passage that as the writer closes, there isn't any kind of, you know, hand-wringing on the part of the Holy Spirit or on the part of the writer at calling them to make this kind of a commitment to God, to walk with God, to be faithful to God, whatever the cost might be. The writer doesn't say to them, oh, boy, okay, well, um, you know, Christianity... Uh, you know, 101, authentic Christianity. Uh, listen, that is pretty demanding, but you know, it's not for everybody. And if that Christianity and that kind of a commitment to Christ, it becomes too personally costly to you, then we've got an easier dumbed-down version that you can fall back on and settle into. And here's the book. It's called Christianity for Dummies. 
Now, as a Christian, I may go there on my own. But the Holy Spirit will never take me there. And no writer inspired by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament will ever encourage me to go there. They'll challenge me to live the real Christian life. The demands of following Jesus have never changed. They're the same in the past. They're the same today. They'll always be the same. Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. You want to go where I go in the world? You want to say what I say when you get there? You want to do what I do when you get there? Then it requires the denial of self, taking up a cross, and following after me. That's how it works. And those are the demands of discipleship. And that's a great mistake, I think, today if we leave people with the impression that in following Christ they can go only as far as they're comfortable with and then they can make up their own Christianity after that. It's a Christianity where Jesus does all of the dying. He does all of the sacrificing. There's no death on our part. There's no sacrificing on our part. The problem is is that Christianity is a long, slow death, a death to self, a death to the big I, me, my, which is not a tragedy because it is only to the degree that the big, selfish I, me, my, self-absorbed, self-consumed person that is in me and is in you, it is only as that person dies step by step and decision by decision, that the resurrection life of Christ opens up to us. And the real authentic Christianity, the fullness of the power and the joy and the blessing and the boldness of it opens up to us. That's how it happens. You take someone that doesn't know the Lord yet. And one day they wake up on a Sunday morning and it's just like any other Sunday morning except something has changed from that Saturday night to that Sunday morning. And they wake up on that morning and they're sick of sin. They're sick of themselves. They hate the person that they are. They don't like where their decisions have brought them in life. They don't like what their decisions have made themselves into. They don't like any of... Uh, any of all of that, they don't want the wor- what the world offers anymore. And when a person comes to that place in their life, they want to hear that there really is another kind of life to be lived. I despise this attempt to take Christianity today and to dumb it down and to make it something less than it is in order to accommodate the world. Where are sinners going to find hope except in an authentic Christianity? In a real relationship with God that looks like what God has described it in the Word of God. You change what Christianity is in the Bible and what it's described of, including all of its demands. And now you've removed hope for a different kind of life from the whole human condition. You've removed that from people. There is a day and an hour in a person's life for the right kind of person, the thinking person, and they have a right to wake up one morning and say, 
I don't like the person I am. I don't like how I treat people. I don't like where I've been. I don't like what I do. I don't like what I think. I don't like where I'm going. I don't like anything about my life. I want to become someone who is polar opposite, entirely different from what I am. And for that person to find hope in Christ. And the Christianity that is described in the Word of God is intended to give hope to that kind of person. And the Holy Spirit will bring people to that place so they will be hungry and eager for the fullness of the Christian life that Christ died on the cross to provide for us. They will not want to wake up and come to a place like this and hear that someone like me has watered this down and made it into something that is halfway between the world and Christ and offers them no hope at all. It's a terrible thing when it happens, and it happens too much. There is something heroic in the human heart, even in our fallen condition. There is something in there from God as our Creator. Created in His image, as broken and as fallen as we are, this survives. There is way down inside in every human being, whether they will ever allow it to get any oxygen to live and to survive, that's their own decision. But there is a desire within us to live the life that we've been created for. To know that I have been created for something great. That is in people's hearts. They will go down a thousand wrong paths before they discover the proper path, so many of them. But God will keep it alive because the realization is, the truth is, that we have been created for something great. And that great thing is a relationship with God. And then the life that comes out of that relationship with God and the influence for God in a fallen world so that those who are once are still in the condition that we once found ourselves in can find hope in looking at our lives and say, where does that happen? There's something within me that's attracted to that and we're able to tell them about Christ. I love the fact that the writer of the book of Hebrews never backs off. He never soft-sells this. He never redefines Christianity. He says, here it is in all of its glory, all of its fullness, all of its hardship, and you need to get on that path, and God will give you the will to get on that path, and he'll give you the power to not only survive the path, but to thrive and do something great for God. You want to live the most exciting different, challenging life possible. Become a Christian and follow Jesus. Don't become religious. Or join a church. Give your life to the Lord and follow Jesus. Everything else out there is the same old thing. 
But one year they're going to clothe it in goth. And the next year they're going to clothe it in this. And they're going to clothe it in this. And then the beat will be this. And then the movies will be this. It is the same old thing. It is conformity. Conformity. Only a life lived for Christ is truly different. Truly outstanding. Truly heroic, truly beautiful in this world. And God knows it, and it's a privilege to live that kind of a life. Well, notice very quickly in verse 20 that he asked, who the writer asked to bless them in this way. You can ask all those things for a person, but if you don't ask it of someone who can deliver it, then what's the use in asking? And he asked the Lord to provide these things to them. And notice he describes the Lord in verse 20 as the God of peace. And they're thinking about abandoning their commitment to Christ. And the writer reminds them, if you do that, it will be at the cost of peace in your life. You say, what's the big deal about that? Think about it. I have become so dependent on the peace of God in my life and in this world, I can't live without it anymore. If I'm going through the morning or going through the day and I lose my peace and my relationship with the Lord, that place way down inside in our spirit, something is unsettled. The peace is disturbed immediately. I go and say, Lord, what is going on here? Because I can't make it five minutes without knowing that I'm right with you and that I have your peace. We come to depend upon it. And God is the God of peace. And he tells them, you go back and do the things that you're thinking about. You're going to gain a temple. You'll regain the Ten Commandments. You'll get all your friends back. You'll be the hero of your family once again. But what you will leave is you will leave the peace of God that you've grown accustomed to. And it will be too high of a price to pay. I don't know what that was. (laughs) But nothing collapsed. And God offers us, you notice here, peace with God. Again, this is the peace. Peace with God is the peace that comes with knowing that whatever is going on in the world, whatever is going on in life, that I know that I am right with God. And why do we have peace with God? Because of Jesus, who he describes as that great shepherd of the sheep, who has provided us with the blood of the everlasting covenant. He's provided us a relationship with God that is based upon what Jesus did on the cross and not on the basis of our own good works. And thus our relationship with God is stable and it's continuing and it's unbroken and it's healthy and it's strong. And he is described as the one who is raised from the dead. And Jesus has provided peace with God through his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Jesus did not go back to heaven until he had settled the sin question and made it possible for man to live at peace with God. And peace with God was made almost 2,000 years ago for you 
There's no need to be at war with God any longer. Think about the condition of the world that we're in. I was reading an article two weeks ago, and they're talking, they're talking about the suicide rates, the depression rates, the medication rates in the United States of America. More people are dying now in the United States of America of suicide than automobile accidents. You know how many people? That's a lot of people that are killing themselves. And people down and depressed and all of the things. And this is just the, the world internationally and nationally around us. But then you add our own personal lives and all of the drama that's associated with all of that. No wonder why all of this is going on. But then you're in that kind of a place. Imagine carrying the weight of the whole world and our own lives in this way and being at war with God on top of it. Who can stand? But the war is over when I surrender my life to Christ. And now I have peace with God. Who in their right mind would want to be at war with God on top of all of the other problems that we have in life? No thanks. I've been there and I've done it. The peace of God. But then there's also the peace with God. And Jesus wants us to have that peace with God, or the peace with God, rather. And how do we have the peace with God? By putting our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. It's that simple. Well, that's how a person enters into peace with God. But Jesus wants us to have the peace of God. Jesus said this, Peace I leave with you. Now take that. He said, Peace I leave with you. I'd be content if he said nothing else than that. See, what could top that? He tops it. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. How peaceful do you think Jesus is right now? Well, sir, he's very peaceful. He's in heaven, thank you. Now go back to the Gospels. And read the account of his three and a half years of his public ministry. All of the hostility, all of the opposition, all of the difficulty, and through all of it, he was the picture of peace. Unfailingly, the picture of peace. You see, the peace that Jesus offers isn't the peace that exists because of the absence of difficulty in life. That's how the world tries to offer peace. Peace will know peace only when in the absence of difficulty or trial in life. Well, our, our seasons of peace are going to come in five-minute blocks then. But Jesus offers a different kind of peace, and that is a peace that abides in spite of the challenges of life and in the face of life. Literally, Jesus said this, I give you the peace that is mine. I give you my own peace. You excuse me for a moment. I've got to regroup. If that's true and he's serious, that's astonishing. I give you the peace that is mine. He said to his followers, I give you my own peace. 
That's the quality of peace that Jesus offers. And Jesus is offering the very peace that filled his heart. Not something like it, but the very same. And it's a supernatural peace. It is unaffected by circumstances or environment. You say, how do we come to experience this peace to make it ours through prayer? Paul wrote to the church at Philippi and he said, be anxious for nothing. Oh boy. How do we do that? But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then here it is again. And the peace of God. How peaceful do you think God is? He's very peaceful. He never goes to a pharmacy or a doctor or anything. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We come to experience this peace by finding just a nice quiet place to pray and then lifting up whatever is creating anxiety in our life up to the Lord in prayer. And we do so until my anxiety has been replaced with his peace. And he promises to do it. You say, how long do I have to pray? That's between you and him. But you pray until that happens. Because that peace is your portion in Christ. It's one of his promises to you. Until that anxiousness has been replaced by his peace, the peace that he has when he looks at your very same situation. And it's a peace that surpasses human understanding. There is a peace that comes with understanding. You say, I'm really anxious about this. Somebody says, well, listen, you're anxious because you don't understand. Let me explain it to you. They explain it to us and you go, all right, okay, now I'll sign. But the peace that Christ offers is something far greater than what comes with our understanding. It's a supernatural peace. And that quality of peace that that comes only from the Lord. And God alone is the source of true peace in this world because the source of our peace must be greater than anything and anyone that would rob us of our peace. And only God is greater. Dear Christian this morning, God loves you. I wish I knew a hundred languages and you could understand a hundred languages so I could say it in a hundred languages. Think about the fact that God loves you. He is so for us we can't, we can't even begin to grasp how for us God is and how committed He is to our lives and how unfailingly committed He is to being faithful to every one of His promises in our lives, including the promise to work all things together for good 
in our lives. What situation has you anxious and worried this morning? And you're wrestling with and you're trying to fix it in your own way. And just like the Hebrew Christians, well, you know, if we do this, but we don't go. And then we go over here and we return to the temple, but we don't quite. And then here and all and all that's going on. And the manipulation, if I throw these resources against it, and if it isn't just me, but 20 people go with me and we do the whole thing and it's all anxiousness and there's no peace in any of it. Sometimes we can throw all of our emotional and material and mental resources at something, and you can fix it for a time, but it will just reappear. Or you may solve that problem, but three other problems will come up out of the ground in, in its very place, and then the peace disappears. The peace that you're looking for and the peace that you're needing can only be found in God and nowhere else. Isn't it funny for us as Christians, even as Christians, we will try to find a source for peace in our lives somewhere other than God. When God has told us every way he can, it will never happen. And if you sit here this morning... And you think about some situation in your life. You say, nothing comes to mind. Think longer than a moment. Sometimes people live in a constant state of anxiety. It's just a dull ache. We just get used to it. We don't even realize the price that's being paid. And God comes in a passage like this and he just speaks to us as his children. You're trying to find Peace, where you can never find peace. You will only find peace in me. In bringing that situation to me and allowing me to replace that anxiousness with my peace, which I am happy to do. And then a deeper relationship between us and God results. It is so easy, even as Christians, to look everywhere but to the God who saved us for peace in the situation. Only He can supply it. Because only our God, the God of the Bible, is greater than all of the things that can attempt to rob us of our peace in this life. And it's a good reminder. And it's a needed reminder. And may it be a blessing in each heart that had need of hearing it here this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, that you are the God of peace. Thank you for the sacrifice of our Jesus, our Savior, to provide us with peace with you. We are so thankful that even if the whole world is crumbling all around us, Lord, to know the peace of
of knowing that we are right with you. And that means everything to us. And Lord, I pray for myself and each one of these men and women in this room. And I ask that you would take us by the hand and that you would use this passage that we've studied this morning to take us out into a fuller experience of not just peace with you, but your peace, the peace of God marking our lives. Lord, as people pray and as I pray and we lift up our causes for anxiousness up to you, we look to you to replace that anxiousness with your peace and your wisdom and your direction and whatever you want to add to it, Lord. And we ask that you would not stop this work, your commitment to having us be a people who walk in peace and filled with peace in the craziness of the world all around us, Lord, for your glory, for our good, Lord, and for the blessing of those that are watching our lives and the hope of seeing something different and to see evidence that you're real and you're true so that they might have a hope in their life for change as well. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian,